Well, good morning, East Point Church. <clears throat> Amen. Well, good morning. The Lord has given us a wonderful, wonderful Lord's Day to come together once again and to, to acknowledge Him as our God and to worship Him. Amen. 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 And He's raining down showers of blessings <laughs> upon His people this morning. Amen. Amen and amen. And one of those blessings is the opportunity to um, give recognition to him for 15 years of his faithfulness to us. Even in our unfaithfulness, the Lord has remained faithful. And he has done exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything that we could have asked or thought over these past 15 years. And we are so thankful for that. And the Lord has blessed us in many ways, beloved, and uh, even this afternoon you'll hear more and more about the ways that the Lord has blessed us, but one of the ways that he has blessed East Point Church through the years is that he has given East Point Church some wonderful friends, friends who have stood with us and prayed for us and served us from the very beginning. They are too many to name this morning, but they come from all over the city they come from all over the country who have blessed this place. And the Lord has used them to encourage us. And one of those men is with us this morning. Uh, he is Pastor Michael Leach. He is the pastor of All Saints Redeemer Church um, out in Stone Mountain. And Michael Leach has been a friend of ours. He's been a friend of your pastors before East Point Church was East Point Church and continue to be a friend to us and encourager to us, a mentor and a soundboard to us through these years. And we are so grateful for him and his lovely wife, Mary, their hospitality to us through the years. Uh, he continues to meet with um, me and Pastor Phil and another pastor once a month to challenge us, to sharpen us, And to receive our loving critique. <laughs> and he is a dear friend. And I can't wait to hear him preach. Most of you have heard him before. But if you haven't, then I pray the Lord would use him to encourage you and point you to Christ. Even more so. Well, brother Leach, if you would come and bless us. And thank you for being here, my brother. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you for your abundantly generous words and fertile imagination. <laughs> it is great to be here in the house of the Lord. This is the blessed place you can be today in the house of the Lord with God's people doing God's work for God's glory only. So I do thank you. Thank you for the friendship that you and I have had and also with my wife, who is not here because she is dealing with some pressing family business in Maryland. And um, we have contracted your affinity and affection over the years. As a matter of fact, coming to East Point is like coming to a home, a, another home, not a second home, but another home. And then we look forward to being at home. It's a place of, of stability. It's a place of certainty. It's a place that we can have the assurance uh, 
of our acceptance and in the house of the Lord, that certainly stands true. So we thank you all again. And um, speaking of home, um, this is the text, the topic for our text today from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. There is no place like home, but that's not a topic. The topic is this world is not our home. This world is not our home. It's a firm assurance that we have from the Word of God. And I don't know if we've read the Word of God, but I customarily read it before I preach, so let's hear the Word of God read to our hearts. From Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that there were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. May God bless the reading and hearers and doers of his word. Almighty and everlasting God, the Father of all comfort, God of all mercies, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end and in between, we do thank you for this glorious opportunity and humbling privilege to gather at the feet of Jesus to learn what the Spirit says to the church, to this church especially on this red letter day. And we pray that the same Spirit will apply and implant these words regardless of and in spite of this fallen creature and vessel into our hearts so that we will press on and persevere on the road that you have laid out for us. And that road is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. In his name we pray, amen. This world is not our home. The writer to the Hebrews is placing these few verses within the context of, everybody knows Hebrews 11 to be what is called a the chapter that speaks of the hall of faith and so on. I really don't like that term, but so it is. And what he's saying here is this, that on the way, in the way of the Christian life, just as it is today and maybe especially as it is today, where there are many distractions, and many deceptions, we must keep pressing forward toward the goal. We must keep pressing forward as we actively rely on and depend on God who preserves us so that we may persevere in the faith. 
And, and that is the theme of this message. The theme of the whole book, actually, is to persevere in the faith as God preserves you by his grace and mercy. Don't turn back. Don't go back. Don't look back too much, East Point, to the 15 years. The rear view mirror in a car is 152nd the size of the, the windshield. Did you know that? And that tells us since it's 50 times bigger, we must look forward through the windshield of God's grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, looking forward to the place that he is leading us. In the writer to the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, the writer affirms over and over that this place is none other than the eschatological land the eschatological promised land that God had made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he's now made to you and to me this year. It's the land that we know as the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down from above. It is the place where righteousness dwells. It is called also in Revelation, the garden city. So we do have a destination, and this destination is the whole purpose of the Christian walk. There is no place like home, but further than that, this world is not our home. God has prepared us a place, and he's leading us there. So what do we find here in this text, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16? We find at least two certainties. And the first, oh, this text has only four verses, and it breaks down easily and naturally into two major portions of two verses each. So in verses 13 and 14, we find the first certainty, the certainty of our fleeting status the certainty of our fleeting start status. In the first place, look at the distant acquisition. These all died in faith. Now whom, of whom is he speaking? Is he speaking of the ones that he just mentioned in verses eight through 12? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah? Or are, is he speaking of all the persons, all the faithful saints of the Old Testament that he has given us and described to us beginning in verse 4 with Abel, and then Enoch, and so on. Uh, and Noah. Well, I think it means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because it says here that, and Sarah, they had not received, and they had died in the faith. They had died in faith. Faith is a very important word, concept, and principle in this book, the word is used, faith by itself is used in the original 32 times in 31 verses. And in this chapter alone, by faith, that single Greek word, pistei, is found 18 times in 18 verses. So you will conclude that faith is certainly of cardinal importance to the writer, to these hearers, and to us today. So they died in faith. When someone is dead and has died, we ask the question of what did he die? From what did she die? Was it because he was killed in an accident on the I-20? Or in our own contemporary circles in much more tragic form, was he or she shot? Well, the Bible doesn't speak like that. Those are proximate causes 
The ultimate cause is that you die when God takes back the breath that he loaned you. And there are only two ways to die, in faith and out of faith. When we die in faith, we die looking forward to the promises that God has given us. And those promises have served us as a sound foundation, as a controlling principle for our lives. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, they died in faith. They didn't receive the promises of land, of multiple descendants, more numerous than the sands on the seashore, than the stars in the heavens, and so on. But they died looking forward to it. They died in faith. Blessed are the saints who die in the Lord. The aging apostle John tells us in the book of the Apocalypse. And they had not received the things uh, promised. They had a distant acquisition of them nevertheless. Notice, but they had seen them and greeted them from far. They hadn't yet grasped them tangibly. They did not possess them in physical reality. But nevertheless, they had seen them with the eyes of faith, of course. And they had greeted them. They had welcomed them. They had embraced them as if they had already materialized in their lives. Isn't this what faith is? The writer begins this chapter by telling us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the definition of faith. Uh, not really. It doesn't tell us everything about faith, but it sure tells us faith is the assurance. It's the hypostasis. It's the substance. It's the reality of things that even though we don't have them, we have the title deed for them. Of things hoped for. And so what we're seeing here is not a full definition of faith, but a, a, a characterization of faith that describes the Old Testament saints, your forefathers and my forefathers. So they had seen them and they had greeted them from afar, not from a, a distance in geography, but a distance in time. It's a spatial comment. And they had acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Let's just stop there. From afar. They had greeted them from afar. They had seen them. They had greeted them. They had. It's like if God had already put it in their laps because He's put it in their hearts. And they had embraced them. This is mine. And they looked at them with this great authentic affection for them. Faith then is living according to the principle of faith. What is faith? Taking God at his word, trusting in him, even though you can't see your way out of the dark. It is a way of, of resting in Christ while we are going through the trials and the mess we have made of our lives. Faith is living, therefore, trusting God. 
And to die in faith without having realized the things that you have prayed for is a faithful living because you're saying that God will bring it through regardless of where I am and what I do. So faith, therefore, is a practical, a practical way of living. Yes, we talk about faith a lot, and it's even possible to have faith in faith. If you're a West Indian or from Africa, you'll probably say, my fate is going to carry me through. <laughs> but, but faith is trusting in God. And the fact that they are looking forward, constantly looking forward to God to fulfill his word, as Solomon said, to perform his word, shows that faith is an eschatological concept. In other words, we not only pray and experience God's blessings right now, but there is a greater fulfillment and a greater anticipation of them that the whole telos of our lives, the whole purpose of our lives, will reach its fulfillment, not in the heresy of living our best life now, you can't, but in the truth, the covenant promise of God that he will bring it all to pass when Christ comes the second time. So, East Point, press on in your faith, whether corporately or individually. Press on in your faith. Keep holding on to the hand of Jesus Christ as he has held on and continues to hold on to you. Yes, he's brought you, as old folks would say, from a mighty long ways. <laughs> but you still have something called eternity. Don't forget that. So let that thought, let that principle, let that gospel truth bear you through these times and beyond. So there's a distant acquisition. And look at their determined acceptance in the last part of 13. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They acknowledge, the word is to confess. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To acknowledge is to confess, and to confess means to say the same thing as to say the same thing, the same word, literally, as God says, so that our sins are not mistakes. <laughs> they're not little piccadillos. No, they're sins that are grievous in God's sight, sins that put Jesus Christ on the cross. And so they acknowledged. They said the same thing as God said. These promises will come to you. And they were that they were strangers, Strangers means they were thinking of themselves as coming from a different land. They're coming from a different land, and therefore they had no citizenship there. They're coming from a different land, with a, maybe with a different language, a different culture, and so on. They were less than the citizens there. It's like a foreign student coming to the United States. Um, and then they were exiles. Exiles mean that they were 
passing through a particular place at a particular time on their way to their final destination. So they greeted them from afar and they acknowledged that, yes, this world is not my home because we are strangers and exiles on the earth. Yes, because we are strangers and exiles, we don't sink down our tent pegs deeply in East Point, as beautiful as it is. <laughs> we understand that we are passing through. We are in transit. Where to? To glory land. And we make this determined acceptance when Abraham, for example, was describing himself as he was looking for a place to bury his wife in Genesis chapter 23, we read that in verse 4, he tells the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. First Peter 2 tells us that we are strangers and exiles on this earth. Sometimes the word sojourner is used. And what do they all mean? They all combine to mean this, that we have no permanent, we have no permanent place of abode in this land on this earth. So the strangers and exiles, they have no football team. They have no, no country club to go to to play golf. They, they have no, they have, yeah, they are passing through. We are just hanging here for a while. And this is inclusive. It applies to all God's people. So the first point is that there's a certainty of a fleeting status. There's a distant acquisition, the determined acceptance. And look in 14, their defiant affirmation. So what are they saying? What are these people saying? For people who speak like this, who describe themselves as strangers and exiles, they make it abundantly clear, visibly clear. They make it manifestly clear. There's no doubt about what they're saying and what they're meaning, that they are seeking a homeland, that they are seeking a home. This is their defiant affirmation. In other words, whenever they speak, whenever they, they, in, they engage in conversation, their confession is corroborated by their conduct and their talk. Their talk, therefore, substantiates their confession of faith. That's all they're talking about. They're not being distracted by the things that are going on now. Yes, we live in this world, but we're not of it. Yes, we are affected by it simply because we live in a fallen world. This is what we are to expect. But their lives are not defined by their parameters and boundaries are not defined by and set by the goings on of everyday life. No, they're looking forward to, they have this position in front of them. Verse 10 tells us that they are looking forward to the city that has foundations 
whose designer and builder is God. And then in chapter 13, we read in verse 14 there, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. So what are we seeing here in this first section? That the people of God from of old, even in the Old Testament, were living just like the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. What does he say there? We walk by faith and not by sight. We walking by faith and not by sight. So what we're seeing, therefore, in summary, is that our Christian walk, which began with our effectual calling by God through the Word of God by the Holy Spirit to answer His call to salvation, from that time our Christian life begins all the, to the end when we are glorified with the rest of the saints in heaven, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. This is the first certainty we have, the certainty of our fleeting status. Life is short, we are moving through. The song says, the hymn says, old hymn says, life is full of swift transitions. Amen. So let's look at a second certainty from 14, from 15 and 16. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. The certainty of our future home in 15 and 16. Notice then that they have grasped the reality of God's promise even though they had died in faith not fully received it yet, but trusting in God that he, because of his truth, because of who he is and what he's done for them in the past, will fulfill his word in the future. Then they had a firm belief in the substantial existence of God's promise to them. It really exists, even though it's not here right now. And then we see also that they have a certainty of a life in a future place, a future dimension. So what do we find here in the first place? In verse 15, we find their steadfast refusal. Their steadfast refusal. Um, 15 says there clearly, I can't find it. If they had been thinking of that land, if Abraham had been thinking of Ur of the Chaldees, whence God had called him and summoned him, um, if he had been thinking of going back to Mesopotamia, if you had been thinking of going back to Guyana or Jamaica, or as we used to say back in those days, um, going to Africa, the motherland, if you were thinking about these things, then here's what the Christians should do and not do. You should not go back. Because we're not thinking about going back to the way we were. We're thinking about going forward to the way God is going to make us to be. So yes, we go back to March the 8th 
15 years ago. But do we, we can't camp there. We can't live there. We must look forward to with the steadfast refusal. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity. They would have had time. They would have had resources. They would certainly have had resources and, and, and motivation to go back. But what was calling them was much firmer and greater and heavier than what was in the past. And so they made the steadfast refusal. If they had been thinking, if they had been turning it over in their minds all the time, we want to go back, just like going back to Egypt. You remember the story of the people of Israel? They wanted to go back to Egypt so that they can eat cucumber and leeks and... <laughs> and garlic. It sounds like they had a whole table laid out for them like at Piccadilly's. It wasn't like that. The Lord calls it a place of furnace of affliction. No. They, if they had been thinking of that land, and the word there means thinking in terms of remembering in order to respond to that which you're remembering. So if they had been thinking about it, saying, yes, I'm going to make my plans, just like Israel did. They wanted to appoint a leader to take them back there. No, they would have had opportunity. But, you know, as it is, they did not go. They made a steadfast Refusal. Scripture is, is replete with examples. It tells us, for example, of the story of, uh, uh, of Lot's wife. She, she left her heart, not in San Francisco, but in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and when they were leaving, when God had granted them a miraculous supernatural redemption, she was thinking about going back. She even looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. She wanted to go back. The scripture tells us in the New Testament that Paul laments in his last letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Oh, everyone has deserted me. Demas, in love with this world, has forsaken me and gone back to Thessalonica. No, we can't go back. Going back is not the way of faith. Going back is the way of futility. Going back is the way of going back to what we used to be. What is it that is calling us back? How many times have you heard Christians say, well, you know, before I became a Christian, I used to make a whole lot of money. And then, I, you know, I got to give it to the church. <laughs> and before... I became a Christian. I didn't have all these problems confronting me now. My, my children are dying. I lost my job. My house is in foreclosure. My health is not doing well. The point is, is we have to look forward. Forward is the direction of biblical Christianity. Our identity as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs would tell you, and the apostles would tell you, and the prophets would tell you, our identity is in Christ. And he's the one that is the good shepherd that is leading us all the way. The good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and he's calling us with a distinct, 
distinctive voice telling us to leave everything and follow him. These saints were moving forward singing, my faith has found a resting place, not in decree or creed. It's not. I forever trust the living God. His wounds should plead for me. I dare not trust the sweetest frame of the sound say, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So then we must press forward. These are the things that define us. Plus, we have a new identity. I forgot to tell you that. When, when was this identity given? When you were baptized? When you were baptized, how? You were baptized into the triune name, the character and the nature of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Name. If that is our identity, is that, if that is what essentially marks us off from everyone else, a visible mark, then, brothers and sisters, we ought to live like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, our forefathers. Does not the New Testament tell us that Abraham is the father of our faith? Then look at the first part of 16. There's a strenuous reassertion here. What is that? What are you talking about? But as it is, well, as the story now is, as the situation stands, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. To desire, they, they stretch out on the promises of God. They lean forward on the promises of God. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. The first word there is this word here, and it means to put everything on what you are pursuing. Don't hold back. Don't let anything, anybody hold you back, East Point, from going forward to achieve what God has planned for you, what he has promised you, and what he has perfected in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, as it is, they desire a better country, a different country, a better place. And if you miss it, it is not New York. It is a heavenly one. Do you see that? It's a heavenly. It's totally different. Here we have no lasting city. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and the new earth, which will all come together as one. No wonder the writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews is saying in this sermon or this letter, he's saying, therefore, at many points, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, 26 forward. He's lacing his, his indicatives with imperatives. After he's told us what God is and who, what God has done for us in Christ, he gives several warnings, at least five of them. Don't go back. Don't look back. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to Moses. You now have Christ, the, the good shepherd, who is also the lamb, who is also the great high priest made in the order of Melchizedek. Stay with him. Plant all your eggs in his basket. Why? Because he is the one under whom God the Father will sum up with, under, and through history. Ephesians 1, verse 10. 
Christ, therefore, is the end of history. He is the meaning of history. He's the substance of history. And they made this very strenuous reassertion. We must have an eschatological perspective. Faith, as I said before, is by definition an eschatological concept because just like our redemption, it will be fulfilled when Christ comes the second time. And then lastly, in the last part of, B, of 16, there's supreme reception. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Do you see this? This is a figure of speech known as a litotes. It's like Paul saying in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. What is he saying? What does he mean? A litotes is the figure of speech in which you say A by saying the opposite of A. So when we see or hear that God is not ashamed, it means that he is extremely delighted. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am totally, I am fully captivated, and I boast in Christ for giving me this humbling privilege to preach the gospel. So this is what it means. God is not ashamed. He is greatly waiting, anticipating, joyfully waiting for us to come home to him. Just like he's not ashamed, the writer tells us in chapter 2 also that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you and you and you his brothers and sisters. And how are we knowing this? Because he says that he who sanctifies Jesus Christ and those who are sanctified, you and me, all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Even now, our Lord Jesus Christ is singing the praise of each and every one of us to the Father in heaven. And again, he says, I will put my trust in him. And so we have this assurance that of the supreme reception that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because this is what he's been saying from Exodus 6, 7, all the way to Revelation 21, the first five verses. It is called the Emmanuel principle. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will, this is what he wants. He wants a people for himself. For what are we? We are the miniature microcosmic representative of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? God's people in God's place under God's rule for God's glory. Soli Deo glory. Gloria, God's glory alone. And this is who we are, East Point. This is who you are because God has called you with a high calling, a heavenly calling, and a holy calling. And he has adopted you as sons into his kingdom. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so we struggle on and we press on for this city for he has prepared for them a city. Jesus is, the Gospels tell us in John 14, he's gone ahead to prepare. Well, he didn't go to Home Depot to get parts. 
You can bet your life. No, he's gone ahead to prepare it through the cross. That's where he's preparing it from. Through the cross, he's prepared this city for us. And he's calling us to himself because he's the way, the truth, and the life. God himself is now preparing for us the city. And we know from Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, that the Holy Spirit is also preparing us as a place for God to dwell in. So we have this great Trinitarian assurance that that our salvation is based on the hypostasis of God, the substance, the reality of God's promise. You can't lose your salvation. And not only that, you won't want to lose your salvation if you are a child of God. So our citizenship is in heaven, not in East Point. East Point is good for only a brief while, only a little season. It is a fleeting status and symbol in our lives. But keep looking forward, East Point, to that great uncloudy day when the Lord will bring us all home and tell us all, oh, welcome, my brothers and sisters, enter into the kingdom, inherit it all, the city that has been prepared for you. God has prepared it. And now we're looking forward to this place where we will go and be with the Lord for heaven. As a matter of fact, wait a minute. I hear the apostle says, we're already seated in the heavenly places. Where from? We are awaiting a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. So just like the promises we have made, we are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And from there, we are awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the trump of Gabel shall sound, and that voice that will shake the earth and the heavens once more sounds, God's people will rise up from the grave. Their bodies are going to be united, reunited with their spirit as one psychosomatic union, just as we were made when God breathed the spirit into our dust. And we will be reunited with the Lord Jesus, and he will now present us as his perfect bride without blemish or without spot to the Father. Ah, Father, here they are, all them that you have given me, except the one that was destined for perdition. That's our glorious future. You recall, recall the 15, the past 15, but look forward to the great eternity that God has promised us. I've seen it. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I've seen it. But I think the writer here has a better view. It is a city that has foundations whose builder and maker and preparer is God. See you in glory. <laughs> Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Use this time, use this word to encourage your people all the more. Strengthen the pastors.